Welcome to the first episode in the year 2021 of Vine to Glass. Happy, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> this is also the first episode that we've actually been able to record in person together. Yes, in beautiful Sonoma, California. Highly recommend a trip if you've never been. Although everything is closed. So. Correct. <laughs> Monitor your expectations. <laughs> we'll have to cut back. Definitely. So... We wanted to record an episode around the ridiculous verbiage that sometimes surrounds wine tasting and wines themselves. I think the vocab can be incredibly daunting in and of its own. And I think that's kind of a barrier that people have around feeling comfortable in, you know, in wine tasting and in the wine industry in general. And... Well, and the inspiration for this episode came from a handful of different friends who said, oh, wouldn't it be so interesting to talk about all the language that surrounds wine or other friends that just ask questions like, you know, what does it mean when someone says a wine is round or has a long finish or mm -hmm. all of these things? Which are great questions and entirely valid because half the time, even as someone in the industry, I feel like the adjectives used feel a bit made up or a bit unnecessary and definitely superfluous. So I think a key message to hold for yourself as you're thinking about these things as a listener and as a wine consumer is to remember that none of these are really hard and fast. And I think you know, I can safely say that Yanbo and I both believe that wine and wine tasting is incredibly subjective, no matter what expert or novice level you're at. And so the important thing is to just be open-minded, you know, think for yourself and learn. So on that note, we will, I think it makes sense to describe to people the basic tasting process. So a real quote unquote professional tasting process will consist of First, checking the empty glass. Make sure the glass doesn't have any weird aromas to it, like detergent or, you know, maybe it wasn't cleaned properly. So make sure you have a totally clean glass. Pour in your wine. And once you pour, you take a, a deep, deep whiff. Stick your nose fully in there. Get it in there. Don't be shy. And I like to close my mouth for one inhale and really focus on what comes through your nose and then do another inhale where my mouth is slightly parted. And I think you receive different aromas and different senses from a wine when you take both of those approaches. And then once you've done that, take a little sip, not well, not too little, but fill your mouth and hold it in there for a couple of seconds. It's tempting to swallow it right away, especially if you're drinking something worthwhile, but hold it in there for a second Swish it around. It's almost like mouthwash. Maybe not quite as aggressively as mouthwash, but move it around. Let it fill all the corners of your mouth. And then depending on your preferences, you can either swallow right away after that, or a lot of professionals will take that mouthful, slightly part their lips, and inhale really quickly. So you're essentially aerating the liquid that's inside your mouth while it's in your mouth. And what that does is the process brings more oxygen to the wine that's in your mouth. And anytime wine comes in contact with more oxygen, it changes the opening of the wine and the exposure that it has and what therefore what it releases 
flavor-wise. So that's another really interesting process. And then after you do that, then you can swallow and note the finish of the wine and any aromas or different sensory experiences you have once you've swallowed. And another important thing about this is glassware. Actually, we have been tasting through a lot of wines this week while we've been in this little quarantine farmhouse. (laughs) Yes, quarantine farmhouse and mostly focusing on work. And we struggled a little bit with glassware at the beginning, didn't we? (laughs) Yes, we did. Well, uh, I think on that note, the topic of glassware is perfect because when we arrived here, we brought all of this fabulous wine to drink together because we knew that things were going to be shut down. And so there were some really special bottles in there. You know, we were spending New Year's Eve up here and New Year's Day. And unfortunately, when we opened the cupboards of this otherwise beautiful, delightful farmhouse, we found these yellow (laughs) glasses that were not really intended for wine. What do you think makes a great glass for wine? So there's a big discussion around, does the glass and the shape of the glass really matter for your wine? And I think it's completely reasonable for people to be skeptical about that because there hasn't really been a whole lot of scientific proof or studies done around the topic. And I myself was definitely a skeptic up until a couple of years ago when I went to a tasting led by George Riedel. So one of the, I forget how many generations they're at right now, but in essence, we're talking about the Riedel glassware family who has been producing wine glassware and decanters and things like this for multiple generations. They're probably the leader in the category. And he led us through a tasting where we compared things like water in different glasses. We compared Coca-Cola in different glasses. We compared sparkling, white, red, dessert wine in different glasses. And the point was to highlight and try to understand when something tastes the best. So as silly as it may sound, Riedel has developed a glass that is supposedly ideal for water. And was it when we tasted water out of their water glass versus not the water glass? It was unbelievable. Oh my God. And going through this entire tasting (laughs) from water to Coke to, you know, sparkling to red, all these different wines. Every time I tasted something out of the quote unquote best glass for it, it completely changed my opinion of the importance and the role of glassware in consumption. And long story short, I'm a big, big believer in that it is worthwhile to acquire the proper glassware for something, especially if you're buying wines over $15. I mean, it's worth paying eight bucks for a proper glass. It really, really, really changes the experience of the wine. It's the difference between, take for example, a Cabernet. And you drink a Cabernet out of ideally a pretty large glass. And it's something that has a more traditional shape. So it's not one of the really exaggerated burgundy glasses. It's something that's relatively upright, not a huge amount of variation in the structure of the bowl. But when we compared it 
in something like a burgundy glass, which has a really large bowl in the base, which is designed to collect more aromas. It was terrible. <laughs> it tasted so tannic, so unpleasant, and it made me completely believe in the importance of glassware. And I don't think it doesn't have to be Riedel. There are many great producers at this point. I actually have my eye on some Zalto glasses that I really want in the future. Do you know what? At 67 Pall Mall, they have a specially made Zalto glass Ooh. for white burgundy. Oh no. Yes, but oh yes. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> that's, that's phenomenal. They're so beautiful mm-hmm. too. They are. And I actually heard from... I can't remember who was saying this, but so Zalto makes all these different glasses for burgundy, for cabs, and for champagne. Um, champagne and what have you. And they also have a universal wine glass. And someone once told me that you can also serve the white burgundies in the, like, not just a Pinot Noir, but you can serve one of the really exceptional aged or Premier Cru or Grand Cru burgundies in the white ones in the burgundy glass and Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. phenomenal because it just has so much room to breathe Mm -hmm. and then you get this beautiful bouquet on the nose absolutely yeah and those wines are like they deserve a glass like that you know what i mean yes they do (laughs) (laughs) they need a glass like that anyway so we also touched on that topic a little bit in our last episode about champagne which is an interesting tidbit to take away too if you haven't experimented with different champagne glasses or you know not traditional flutes. That's a, an interesting one that's worth paying attention to if you haven't listened to that episode yet. But I think after you have played around with different glassware and you have tasted in different formats, then at the crux of tasting is the structure of wine, right? You're talking about the chemical structure, the different layers that are made up of primarily acid, tannin, sugar, or fruit. Those are commonly interchanged words, and alcohol. And these four categories are the primary components of wine. And they are what create all of the descriptors and the adjectives that people use to describe a wine. And I think understanding that structure is critical to understanding why some of these ridiculous words get thrown out and or to understand what maybe you are really trying to say as a consumer when you're tasting and you maybe can't find the right word or you can't relate to what someone else said. Can you talk about where some of these structures come from in the winemaking process? So what do tannins come from? What does the acid come from and what affects the acidity level and things like that? Yeah, that's a great point. So if you want to break it down one by one, something, so acid is looked at as really the backbone of a lot of wines. And that is a component that comes primarily from the region and the climate of the grape, as well as when the grape is picked. So if you think about any fruit and its exposure to the sun, the longer a fruit is exposed to the sun, the more it ripens. As a fruit ripens, acid level falls in the fruit. So conversely, the earlier you pick a fruit, the higher level acid it has. And 
on the same token, you could say regionally look at what different weather patterns. So somewhere like Western Sonoma in California has really high levels of fog, higher precipitation levels than somewhere like Napa and Napa Valley. That's really only, you know, 50 miles away from the farthest Western point of Sonoma. And the, the more fog you have, typically the higher acid level you have in a grape. Then something like tannin comes from a few different places. So tannin's main contributors are the grape skin and the aging vessel. So typically oak and the skin as well as the seeds of the grape come into contact with the wine or have an influence on the wine, depending on the pressing method selected by the winery or the winemaker. The more contact the juice or the fruit of the grape has with the skin and the seeds, the higher level of tannin you will develop. And when we say tannin, we're talking about the elements that taste a little dry. It's what makes your mouth feel kind of dry afterwards. It's what contributes sometimes a slight green taste in the wine. And then oak, certainly, right? So this is another, as another natural product, it can lend its own tannin to the wine. And that increases that experience of, you know, again, dryness that you may taste after you swallow wine. One of our friends who is here with us in Sonoma was asking, you know, what does tannin taste like? And I feel like if you were to imagine eating only the skin or the seeds of a grape, it's exactly that flavor that kind of makes your mouth feel just like kind of dry afterwards. And yeah, another one that has always worked for me is thinking about oversteeped tea bags. Mm. So if you're making mm. tea and you you leave the tea bag in there for too long and then the resulting liquid is basically, you know, it's harsh, it's earthy, it's mm. drying, it pulls a lot out of your mouth, that's tannin mm -hmm. as well. There's a difference between when someone says wine has a lot of tannins versus saying a wine is dry, right? Yeah. So that's a yeah, that's a good differentiator to call attention to because while tannin can be dry, tannin is not a reflection of the dryness of a wine. So when we conceptually if you say or if someone asks is this wine dry, that means they're actually referring to the sugar content in the wine. So dry, the opposite of dry in this conversation is sweet. And these are two opposite ends of the spectrum. So take Riesling as a great example. People typically assume that Riesling is sweet, and that's fair. Most Rieslings that are sold in the U.S. are sweet, but there are a lot of dry Rieslings sold in the U.S. that are absolutely delicious. And that application of the word dry means that the sugar content in them is next to zero, we'll say for our purposes here. And that when we say sugar, we're talking about the technical description is residual sugar, also known as RS. And that classification is what allows producers to use words like dry, semi-dry, or sweet. Mm. And those refer to the different sugar levels. So while you may say that there are different ways to use dry, essentially, in describing a wine. So just remember that Dry can refer to the sugar content as well as refer to the experience that you have from drinking a really tannic wine. 
And then after that, we have sugar or fruit. So in the structure of a wine, people often think that a fruity flavor means that it's sweet. And people, you know, I think it's a result really of describing things like candy that we've eaten for a long time. We associate something as fruity or something that is fruity as being sweet and vice versa. Whereas sweet is rarely the appropriate word to use in describing a wine uh, based on the conversation we were just having about sweet versus dry. So typically as a consumer, if you are, if you are tempted to say, oh, this wine is really sweet, what you probably mean is fruity. Mm-hmm. And then there are different ways to break down fruity beyond that. I think another um, confusing descriptor is also when wine is described as floral, because that also doesn't necessarily mean sweet. But I can count on more than one hand the number of times I've been to a restaurant or to a wine bar and said, oh, I like floral uh, wines. And people automatically think, oh, you like sweet wine. Yeah, so true. But you Mm -hmm. know, the other night. So actually two bottles that we've had here, we had a fabulous Barolo and we should include these in the show notes. Mm. We had a fabulous Barolo that had these beautiful roses on the nose and it was so floral, but that was, Mm -hmm. it's not a sweet wine. Not at at all. all, Absolutely. You just, Mm -hmm. but it's very floral. And similarly, the the Riesling that we had last night Mm -hmm. with these amazing peanut noodles. So good. Um, <laughs> Such a beautiful pairing. <laughs> it was a dry Riesling, but very floral on the nose again. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, these beautiful white flowers on the nose. So true. I think that's one of the most important things to take away as a consumer or as a novice drinker of wine is the difference between sweet, dry, and fruit. Make sure that you are understanding what you mean when you say something is sweet versus mm. something is fruity. Uh, you know, for example, mm. I ha- always have people describe something like a Cabernet or a Zinfandel to me as sweet. And they go, oh, mm. this wine is really sweet. Mm. My father, love him, but he's one of the- <laughs> <laughs> We love you. Yeah. <laughs> love you, dad. He's very guilty of this. You know, I'll have, open a Zin. He loves Zin. And one of his frequent you know, comments is, oh, this is really sweet. And I just, you know, like, well, you know, maybe what you're meaning is fruit, dad, <laughs> and or fruity. <laughs> and well, we're getting there. But that's a good application of the difference mm. between sweet and fruity. I think a really good tasting exercise can be to get a wine that is a particular grape varietal that was grown in different climates. Definitely. So I had this personal experience where I tried a wine that I shall not name (laughs) that was very highly rated and just really written about in glowing terms by a very famous wine reviewer, a wine critic. I have a guess of what it is, but I won't say it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, she really raved about this wine. So I was like, oh, I want to try it. And I got a bottle and it was so, it was a Pinot Noir. It was so jammy. And I think I told you about Mm -hmm. it. It was just like, it was to my taste, so jammy, lots and lots and lots of fruit. And it was a Pinot Noir. And I had another, we drink a lot of Pinot Noir, I think, because we both really enjoy red burgundies. But I also had a Pinot Noir from Oregon, which I also won't name because I feel bad comparing them. (laughs) Should I just name them? (laughs) Oh my God, I don't know what to do. Uh, I don't know either. Uh, Maybe not. 
okay, yeah, we'll keep that one a secret. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can email us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we'll Inquiring you know. minds. <laughs> but this other one that was grown in Oregon was, it was like another type of wine, mm-hmm. even though it was the same grape grown in the same country on the same coast, but arguably very different climate. So you sure. could really tell the difference in terms of sugar levels. Like you could really taste the difference, the fruit concentration. Absolutely. I think that's an interesting exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a good thing to try to get a sense of what effect climate has on different grapes. And then I guess the last part of structure that we haven't really talked about yet is alcohol. So alcohol contributes body, it contributes heat, and it contributes to the aftertaste. So when we say body, that means the way that a wine fills your mouth or what it feels like when it's in your mouth. Something that is light-bodied is something that after you swallow it, there's no consequence, right? There's basically nothing left in your mouth. There's no feeling. There's no quote-unquote aftertaste, which is a word we don't really like to use. But for the sake of translating here... It's what lingers in your mouth afterwards, and it's the way that the wine feels when you're holding it in your mouth. It's also what contributes, like I said, the feeling of heat. So really high alcohol wines, which we have plenty of in California, you know, you may even feel a slight burn as you're swallowing them, or I think high alcohol wines really contribute to, or they accentuate rather, the experience of tannin. So high alcohol, high tannin wines are just, they, it's like they're giving a beating to my mouth. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. Not, you know, not one of my favorite experiences. Is alcohol level related to sugar level? It is actually. So when you look at the basic chemical formula for making wine, it's sugar plus yeast equals alcohol, CO2, and heat. And this is essentially how you make wine. And these each one of those formulaic components can be altered, right? They can be controlled by the winemaker or by the viticulturalist in the vineyard before harvest. But it's something that most wine producers and most winemakers want to control for because, as we were just describing, alcohol is a huge part of the experience of or contributes to a huge part of the experience of drinking. And so you don't want something that is abrasive to a consumer, which is why you end up with these two schools of thought in consumers, people who either A, love old world wines, which means primarily France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Greece to a degree. And then you have consumers who love new world wines, meaning more California, Oregon, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina as well. And those are typically wines that are done in a higher alcohol style, also in part due to their geographic location. But old world wines are typically, not always, but typically lower alcohol. Again, not all of that can always be controlled. Just be, you know, consider climate change. That's mm. raising heat levels across the country, across the world. As we were mentioning earlier, the higher heat and the more sun exposure you have, the higher alcohol level you'll end up with because the sun has developed more sugar in the Mm. fruit. One of the descriptors that we were talking about when we were preparing for this episode was 
austere. <laughs> and I wanted to ask if that has anything to do, like when people describe a wine as austere, does that have anything to do with the sugar and alcohol levels? So this is where it starts to get really, you know, to each their own, really. And I think another disclaimer that I would put with a lot of these words is that oftentimes wine writers are trying to find a nice way to describe something that they found difficult or unpleasant. And (laughs) wine writing is its own political business, right? It has, yeah, it has politics and motives, ulterior motives attached to it. So there are a few typical words that we'll reference most of, or the most commonly used ones that are really a very PC way of describing something kind of unpleasant. And I would say austere is one of those. Mm. Austere, it really depends on the wine. It could be a result of the alcohol and the acid, but primarily in in essence, it means that the wine is somewhat unapproachable. Mm. So it's just, it's not a really nice experience yet. Maybe it is too young. Maybe it's not integrated yet. All the components that we've talked about, maybe they're just, they haven't Mm. integrated yet. It needs more time. Or it means that like, maybe it just wasn't particularly well-made. It was difficult vintage. So austere essentially means (laughs) unapproachable. (laughs) (laughs) Not not a great, not a great descriptor. But it sounds so much more civil. It does, doesn't it? (laughs) And then I think the other useful thing to understand when you're tasting wines and considering different adjectives around tasting is where different components hit on your tongue. So we've included a really interesting grid or map in our show notes, which shows a quote unquote map of your tongue and the areas of the tongue that are hit by the different tastes. So the humans have really five primary tastes, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. Mm. And umami is a lesser known one, but it basically refers to savory, but it's different in the way that it more refers to the savory kind of taste that you get from mushrooms, for example, or asparagus is another common example. And these are also important things to understand when you are tasting wine. Yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing about that map of where you taste different things on your tongue is also the sequence in which you taste. Mm. So I do think it makes a really big difference to make an effort to first smell the wine as a separate activity, like literally take 10, 15 seconds just to smell the Mm -hmm. wine, give it a swirl, Mm -hmm. let all the aromas come out, Mm -hmm. smell, and then separately take a sip and taste, and then kind of wait after that first sip to taste what flavors remain in your mouth after you've swallowed that first Mm -hmm. sip. And I think that kind of gives you the full picture. And I think what's so interesting is for Barolos, for example, the nose is so, it's feminine, it's roses Mm -hmm. and flowers. But then once you take a sip of it, it is very, you know, it's like, powerful and it has body and it has tannin and it's a perfect food wine because it can be really beautifully structured and stand up to very rich 
delicious foods like the ultimate polenta that we made the other night. <laughs> the most ridiculous bowl of polenta you've ever seen in your life. Cheese, mushrooms, fresh truffle, greens maybe? I don't know. We, we got a little... <laughs> things got crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, that reminds me of as well, if you've ever been to a wine tasting or you've done a lot of winery visits in one day... And you think about how your tongue feels at the end of the day, brutal, right? I mean, depending on where you are, you've either had a lot of high tannin wines or you've had a lot of high acid wines. And my tongue is always the most affected in the front, the perimeter of my tongue, essentially. And I would describe it to someone comparatively by using... Sour Patch Kids as an example. <gasps> yes, that's a perfect oh example. My gosh. Have, like. I'm sure everyone has had that experience at some point or another of eating too much sour candy. And honestly, my tongue is salivating just talking about sour patch kids. <laughs> and think of how your tongue feels after you eat too much sour mm-hmm. candy. Destroyed. Destroyed. You know, maybe you even get some little blisters on your tongue. What? That's never happened to really, me. Really? No. What's has that happened to basically, you? Basically. Oh my gosh. Oh. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you eat too much sugar and the sugar and the acid combined rip apart your tongue. Wow. How many Sour Patch Kids oh, did God. you eat? I don't know, but my tongue hurts just thinking about it. I feel like also not everyone tastes wine in the way that you do. So maybe this won't be a common experience that others can share. But if you're ever tempted to go on a tasting trip with Phoebe, bring Sensodyne because you will lose all the enamel on your teeth. Correct. And I can speak from personal experience and vouch for the fact that you need to bring Sensodyne. Yep. You start now. Start, Start before you get too much older. Can we talk a little bit about some examples of different kinds of wine that are fresh or crisp or that are full-bodied and round or that are, yeah, maybe we just start with those ones. And what are some examples of wines? That's a good idea. So I think one of the most common categories is the sweet or fruity category, right? Where again, people are confusing those two primary descriptors. And then when you break it down, what you're really talking about is fruity, right? So sweet is typically not an appropriate descriptor Mm -hmm. unless you are really analyzing the residual sugar content of the wine. So going back to fruity, there are a lot of different ways to describe fruity. There's grapey, jammy, punchy, fleshy, you know, and then you get into different kinds of fruit. Is it plum? Is it apple? Is it apricot? Is it peach? You know, is it dried? Is it fresh? And I think familiarizing yourself with vocab like that is the best way to find or discover when it applies to your experience Mm. or not. And the power of suggestion is really, really relevant here because Mm -hmm. if you are tasting a wine and you can't quite place something and someone provides a word that, you know, maybe it's accurate and maybe that really is the word that you're experiencing, that can be either a great way to learn or a somewhat confusing way to learn because Mm. someone may be placing an idea in your head that you're not genuinely relating to, but because you can't find the exact word that you want, yeah, it's mentally confusing Mm. and it's confusing for your palate to then translate to. Mm. So those are basic ones to start with. Can you think of, I mean, I know that we just said that we don't want to put ideas into people's heads, 
but while they're tasting, <laughs> we, we can put them into the heads now. <laughs> can you think of any examples of typical wines that would be fruity? Yeah. So some of the fruitiest wines, in my opinion, are Zins, Cabernets, Merlots. I would say if you go a layer deeper and you think about descriptors like jammy, mm. to me, that's often something that comes with maybe California Pinot Noir mm -hmm. or a California Cab or Cab mm -hmm. Blend, maybe a Merlot, mm -hmm. something that is punchy. I don't think I've ever had a punchy wine that was not young. Mm. So punchy is typically a lot of fresh fruit, right? Mm. The fruit is what kind of fades as the wine ages. It fades, it changes, it becomes more like a dried characteristic. Mm -hmm. So something might go from plummy to dried plums mm -hmm. as it ages. So punchy to me is typically on younger wines. Yeah, I was going to say for the fruitier wines also, something like a Beaujolais or... Yes. Even a young Pinot Noir, like a village level Pinot Noir. For yeah, yeah <clears throat> that's a great point too. Yeah, and actually something like Grenache to me is always very grapey. Mm. Uh, to me is one of the most grapey varietals that really tastes still like a grape mm. when you drink it, which is actually kind of rare for wine mm -hmm. in a funny way. Mm -hmm. What about something that would be round? Yeah, round. So to me, round is... Round refers to the experience in the mouth. Round is a descriptor applied to a full-bodied wine. So to me, the opposite of round is flat. So when you drink something that you swallow and then the flavors are immediately gone from your mouth, that's a flat wine. But something that is round, it, it fills your mouth. It really gets into all corners. Every part of your tongue has a different experience. And then after you swallow the sensation is still there and lingers on your tongue and lingers in your mouth for a little while. And that's, to me, that's a very positive and strong endorsement of wine is round. It typically means, yeah, like I said, well, well integrated. If you want to go into our favorite category of Burgundy, we've had some phenomenal high acid wines. What are some of your favorite descriptors for higher acid wines that really nail the experience? Oh, gosh. Well, I think for some of the aged white burgundies, they are this perfect combination of, um, of acid, which allows the taste to linger on your palate for longer, and lots of dried fruits. So typically, you know, if they've got a little bit of age on them, if it's, say, a white burgundy, the fruits that you would get on the nose when the wines are younger, fresh stone fruits like mm -hmm. peaches or apricots. Delicious. Oh, you get them in a much more concentrated, you, it smells like dried apricots. I actually have some tasting notes from Burgundy mm. where one of my favorite bottles that we tasted, I wrote down dried apricots, mm -hmm. a little bit of a little bit of smoke, some acid, mm. just these like really nice. Oh my God. It was just so good. So good. And I think those really rich flavors like a stone fruit or a dried stone fruit mm -hmm. are so delicious when they're properly contrasted. Mm -hmm. So a really rich note like dried apricot when it comes with really well-balanced acid as mm -hmm. well is just 
I mean, it's perfect. And there's something, there's an element of nuttiness to mm-hmm. it too, like nuttiness and a little bit of creaminess. Right. I have no idea where that comes from. from the oak probably, mm. typically, depending on their aging, depending on the choice of aging strategy of the mm-hmm. winery. Yeah, the oak is always a really nice mm-hmm. balancing uh, effect on a lot of those wines. You know, we talked a little bit about flat mm-hmm. on acidic wines or rather wines lacking acid, but another really horrible but funny way to describe something like that is fat or flabby. Oh, <laughs> which you will you will see these descriptors on occasion <laughs> and they're so sad because to, I mean it I guess they're actually incredibly accurate because try to, you know, take a second and try to imagine what the description of flabby means in a wine. And to me, it means something that is like lacking in a certain part of structure. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have the rest of the components as well developed. It doesn't have, doesn't have its partners in the structure of the wine that it needs Sorry, descriptors get pretty extreme as we've discovered. Mineral is another really interesting category that people use to describe wines. Do you have any top mineral wines that you really like or Um, mineral descriptors? Well, I like to eat seafood for something like oysters or shellfish. I love a good Chablis or a good Sancerre. Mm-hmm. And I feel like both of those are grown in soils rich with limestone. And I really mm-hmm. think that comes through in the grape. Like you can really, you can kind of get this salty, sometimes flinty. Like if you kind of imagine what it might taste like to lick a rock. <laughs> I'm sure I did that as a child, by the way. Absolutely, right? You didn't live <laughs> if you didn't lick a rock as a child. <laughs> Take note. (laughs) But it tastes kind of like that, obviously, in a more subtle way, because we don't actually want to lick rocks anymore. That being said, if you have never licked a rock or licked cement, stop listening to this podcast. (laughs) No. Listen, it may be worth trying it out just so you understand what on earth are people talking about when they say a wine tastes like wet asphalt or slate or flint. You will understand if you lick one of those minerals. It it really mm. it, it really translates for me. And typically those experiences do come from the soil that the grape is grown in. Or sometimes the aging vessel. So folks will use concrete. Concrete is coming back for a lot of white wines, some lighter reds. People are using concrete vessels to age in or ferment in, as well as terracotta Mm. lends a little bit of those mineral characteristics. I do think you can train your nose and your palate, like their muscles at the end of the day. And, you know, for example... What is the name of the chemical that produces the smell or taste of green peppers? Oh, the pyrazines. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I remember we had a conversation about pyrazines when we were talking about green tea. And Mm -hmm. you were like, oh, I don't like the pyrazines. And I was like, what? What is that? And I had never noticed that taste or smell before. Mm -hmm. But now I occasionally notice it. And Mm -hmm. Honestly, if I had never, if, you know, if you'd never made me aware that such a thing existed, I would have never noticed it for the Mm. rest of my life. So I do think it's like with all other things, the best way to learn is just by practicing. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, in this case, practicing means drinking wine. It's the best (laughs) practice. (laughs) 
<laughs> but there's just no other way. Yeah, that's so true. And that's a good example because pyrazines can be found, I would say, most frequently in my experience in wines like Sauvignon Blanc or Carmenere or Cab Franc. Mm. And I love Carmenere and I love Cab Franc, but I hate pyrazines and I hate green bell peppers. But sometimes those elements or the element of a pyrazine or pyrazinic, you know, emphasis or element in a wine can work and it can balance with the other components in a way that is really just interesting mm -hmm. or it ends up becoming a good balancing factor to a very otherwise chocolatey experience, mm -hmm. which I often love mm -hmm. about Cab Franc. But the other major descriptor and category that you could consider with wine is the savory or umami mm. element. And I feel like this is really up your alley based on certain areas that you love. Of is wine. it? What? Well, think of like, so when we, when we were talking about umami, the primary examples that come up are like asparagus and mushrooms. Mm. And I think red burgundy mm. is a great example of a wine that provides on occasion that earthy mushroom experience, mm. but in a good way. I think there's mm. a fine line between good mushroom and bad mushroom mm -hmm. and also organ pinots, mm. where you're from. <gasps> that's true. Actually, that's really true. I also get that from Barolos as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wow, I'd never thought about it that way before, mm. but that's so true. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a great point for consumers trying to learn, you know, what on earth is it that I'm tasting? What is mm. it that I'm experiencing? Get it yourself a reference book. We talked about a few in our mm -hmm. first couple of episodes, but something like, you know, Jancis Robinson wrote a great big textbook on wine. Mm -hmm. And that's a great intro to both wine regions, ways to taste wine, descriptors, and getting yourself something like that, that you can just mm -hmm. kind of peruse while you're tasting wines mm -hmm. and expose yourself to different vocab mm -hmm. is a really nice way to learn what your palate experiences. Maybe one thing we can do as a closing note, as also a way to summarize some of the things that we've talked about, is calling out some of the typical things to watch out for in a sparkling, in a white, mm -hmm. in a red. Right. So maybe just to start with sparkling wines, what are some of the descriptors that you might typically watch out for? So the things that come to mind first for me, obviously this will change person to person and it changes based on what you're drinking. But the first things that come to mind for me in sparkling are the components. So the primary ones for me are acid and body slash creaminess in this case. And I think those are the components that really make a sparkling wine unique. So acid is critical, of course, because it's a white-based wine, or it is a white wine, typically. And that is what allows a wine to age. It's what gives you that bright citrus experience in your mouth, which is often misdescribed as tart. Hmm. And tart is not really... It's not really a word that's used in the wine industry. So if what comes to mind for you as a consumer is tart, try to find different ways to describe that, which for me would be something like lemon peel or even a dried fruit of some kind can be tart, like a dried pear. Or, or a dried cherry. Definitely. Yeah. 
So sparkling wine, those are things that come to mind. You know, I get a lot of when you go into the creamy aspect, which is more referring to the body and maybe what you get on the end of the experience and more on the finish are things like hazelnut flavors Mm -hmm. or brioche or... Brioche is one that you hear so much. Brioche, yeast. Toast. Mm -hmm. I love the nutty flavors that come out with especially some of the aged champagnes or aged Blanc de Blanc especially. So good. Absolutely. On the other end, in sparkling, you can get some fresh fruit flavors like Mm -hmm. green apple. Yeah, totally. What else have we had in sparkling recently? Lemon citrus, green apple, yeah, fresh fruits like that, which I think is also similar of, it's so hard to lump all white wines and all red wines into one category, but definitely for things like Sauvignon Blanc Mm -hmm. or even some Chardonnays, you can get these fruit aromas on, especially on the nose, Mm -hmm. um, whether they're citrus fruits or stone fruits Mm -hmm. like peaches or what have you. Absolutely. But I do also think for white wines, especially for Chardonnays, you can get some really round Chardonnays with really beautiful body. And if the stars all align with perfect acid and everything. Absolutely. And then Chardonnay or the broader category of whites too, I think expands from sparkling and you can start getting things like cooked apples Mm. or more of the, I guess also in sparkling, you'll get the mineral essences. Mm -hmm. You'll get things like, Oh yeah. You know, it may not be as specific as something like slate or flinty, but there's a definite mineral component to a lot of sparkling. And you would also get those in some of the white wines, like a Chablis, a Sancerre. Absolutely. Absolutely. Even in some parts of Burgundy. Like I remember someone explaining that between Chassin-Montrachet and Pouligny-Montrachet, there's slightly more limestone in the soil in in Pouligny-Montrachet. So you have that slightly saltier, more minerally flavors in the wine. Definitely. And then if you move to reds, I always feel like on lighter reds, I'm working with brighter fruit flavors like mm-hmm. a raspberry or cherry or something that's grapey, like we were talking about earlier in something like a Grenache, maybe a Beaujolais. Then there's a little bit of pluminess that comes out in those wines, mm-hmm. some mineral characteristics, some earthiness. You might get some umami, like mm-hmm. mushroomy flavors. You're almost always looking out for the tannin structure Mm -hmm. in red wines and seeing how that plays a role in the overall wine. Whereas I definitely feel like in white wines, you know, we're often talking more about acidity than tannins. Right. But if you move into heavier reds, then you can start using more descriptors. Or typically I find myself using descriptors more like leather or... Mm -hmm. Uh, cedar or smoke or dried Mm -hmm. red fruit. So maybe something like a dried plum or Mm -hmm. dried cherries, tobacco. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes you get things like sage and Mm -hmm. different elements that are kind of surprising, but Mm -hmm. make for really beautiful and interesting and typically nicely balanced wine. 
What about you? Anything that you think I've missed there? I think the only other two points that I would call out are the floral notes, which I love. Definitely. And I think those can be present in the sparkling, in the whites and the reds. So Mm -hmm. some of the examples that we've given already, like Riesling and Barolos, they have the floral Mm -hmm. notes just on the nose, really, or primarily on the nose. And then the other thing is there are always exceptions to the rules and also everything changes when you pair it with food, totally, which I find can just be such a transformative experience, both for the food and the wine. Mm-hmm. And then wine will also change the longer that it's open too. So mm-hmm. wine tastes one way when you've just opened it and you've poured yourself the first glass and it'll change 20 minutes later. It'll mm-hmm. change 60 minutes later. It'll change three hours later. So keep that in mind too. And that's another fun experiment to do yeah. for yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. So on that note, I think that we will wish you all a very happy new year, full of good health and many bottles of memorable wines. I hope so. Thanks for joining us. And as always, we'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts about the episode. Let us know if there's anything you want to hear more of. And please check out our show notes for some of the references that we've made. And in good health. We'll see you next time. 